Well, welcome to uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. This is the Grant's podcast, and I am Jim Grant. And with me today, uh, as usual, is the deputy editor of Grant's, the great Evan Lorenz. At his side is Phil Grant, the editor of Almost Daily Grant's, not to be missed daily market bulletin, which, by the way, is yours merely for the asking. Please do sign up for it on the Grant's website. And to my left, as always, is Eric Whitehead at the controls. And this episode of Grant's on the Air is brought to you by uh, LinkedIn Learning, and it is brought to you by uh, another podcast called Money for the Rest of Us. So a podcast sponsoring a podcast. I guess that's like a new economy. Anyway, it's a pleasure to have both of our sponsors with us. Evan, you know what we're going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the TikTok of time. We're going to talk about the elapsed time between perception and payoff. And you know how long that can be? A week? 20 years or so. Yes. In fact, well, we're going to talk about three episodes in grants. In the long, uh, uh, sometimes storied history of grants, we got uh, three discrete episodes we want to bring to your attention. One is the uh, the matter of General Electric, Um, much in the news. The second has to do with um, the notorious mortgage-backed securities structure the CDOs and other such science projects of 2006. And uh, the third is, what's the third, Elliot? Uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals. I, yeah, that was uh, Evan Lorenz's project. Most successful one. It was uh, at length, right? It was not... Uh, well, it didn't happen right away. No, no, it did not. Well, you know, in this in this day and age, uh, and I think uh, Amazon Prime is testament to it, if you want something, you want it right now, right? When you write something, we, we go to a lot of trouble to write these stories. And having written them, we expect uh, Mr. Market to uh, reciprocate with a little bit of uh, positive reinforcement. Is that too much to ask, Phil? No, I don't think so. In 1990, he wrote something about uh, General Electric, and it was not uh, it was not bullish. It was actually was quite bearish. And uh, Jay Diamond, then publisher and uh, chief cook and analytical bottle washer, was all things to Grant's then except the rewrite guy. And Jay did a great job of uh, looking at General Electric and pointing out some of the weaknesses in the finances and the perhaps over-dependence on Capital Corp. And the headline of the piece was Hot Light on GE, September 14th, 1990. Evan, how long ago is 1990? Uh, 27 years. Okay, we were early. I don't mean to suggest that uh, you would have done well by shorting General Electric in 1990. In fact, if you look at the stock chart, it did rather well throughout the 90s. It did well in ways that, I don't know, to us at the time seemed slightly strange. Evan, uh, perhaps you can reflect a little bit on the singularity of the accuracy of the forecasts of Wall Street with regard to GE's quarterly earnings. It was uncanny. Yeah, I think that you calculated it was something like one in 50 billion that that analysts would get it so correct. Without fail, every single quarter, GE made the number. Every single quarter, a one in 50 billion shot for that, by the way. It wasn't our calculation. It was, uh, I've forgotten who it was, but it was a, a very astute calculation. And, um, you know, once I was on CNBC, I forgot what the occasion was, and I think the topic was earnings management, maybe, or at least the topic became earnings management. Jack Welsh, the uh, illustrious and for a long time lionized CEO of GE, he was the avatar of shareholder value and he was talking about it. He wrote a book, did Jack Welsh. He wrote a book about, well, about his own life. It was a bestseller. It's an autobiography. It was called Jack Straight from the Gut. In this book, he talked about the, the culture of GE and he talked about a time when things weren't going particularly well. This was in 1994 and Kidder Peabody, then a GE subsidiary, Kidder being a member firm of the New York Stock Exchange, had sprung a $350 million leak. These things do happen, but not to Jack Welsh. He doesn't like surprises. He was hard broken, in fact. He had uh, nobody to blame but himself, but uh, there would be a black mark in the first quarter's press release due out in just two days. So what do you do about that? Well, you fix the damn problem, right? Yeah, there's two days left. So here's what he writes in his autobiography. Quote, the response of our business leaders was typical of the GE culture. Even though the books had been closed on the quarter, many immediately offered to pitch in to cover the Kidder gap. 
Some said they could find an extra $10 million, $20 million, and even $30 million from the sofa cushion. No, from their businesses to offset the surprise. Though it was too late, their willingness to help was a dramatic contrast to the excuses I had been hearing from the Kidder people. Probably the Kidder people talked to the compliance department and said, Jackie, you really can't do it. And by the way, if you do, don't put it in the book. Yeah, whatever. So we we're on CNBC and Jack comes on. They say, I was a guest, you know, another damn talking head, and Jack Welsh comes on the phone. I say, Jack, I'm, I read your book with great interest. It seems as if GE was uh, was poised to undertake what we sometimes call informally earnings management. Massaged earnings. Yeah. And he indignantly denied it. Anyway, we wrote these stories. I We, we have published, and this is yours for the asking too, ladies and gentlemen. This is, this is uh, we have com compiled a compendium of, of GE stories, how GE came to grief, a grants compendium. My favorite is the one we wrote in 2009 about GE's, I thought, thoroughly disreputable settlement with the SEC on uh, book cooking and earnings manipulation charges. Seemed a heck of a low estate for Thomas Alva Edison's old corporate light bulb enterprise, neither admitting nor denying guilt, of course, paying a trifling $50 million. What, how many? $50 million. How many? It's like one trailer plane, right? Vowing never again to commit the sins to which it had not confessed. A sell-side analyst obliged to report at the Wall Street Journal with a comment that really the revelations didn't matter. What the accounting practices issue might have been somewhat frustrating, he claimed they were never material. Nothing lost save honor. Hmm. Well, this story of ours was headed under the cloak of respectability. So, uh, fast forward, blah, blah, years pass, more, or, oh, suddenly, wait, the earnings aren't coming in on schedule. What's this about? It seems they like rewarding shareholders a lot, giving a, a pretty mm. hefty dividend. Mm -hmm. The only problem is the business isn't doing its job in kicking out the earnings to actually pay for that dividend. Correct. What we need is a new business. We need a new uh, reorganization thing or yeah. a new... Uh, we need a new... What did they put it uh, in the uh, press release? The Wall Street Journal, a very, very fine herd on the street column written by, who was that? Who wrote that? Uh, one of those reporters, I forget. Yeah, who. those guys. And they uh, quoted the new CEO, the new Jack Welsh <laughs> of GE saying, we need a new, a better ratio. We need a better uh, do say ratio. Do slash say ratio. That was a new one on me. Yeah, that's right. Let's do do say better. Anyway, nuts. So GE got uh, smacked around a little bit this week and I say high time. By the way, we lifted our fatwa on the stock some years ago. I don't have an opinion on the stock. I do have an opinion on the crummy culture of GE. Also, I have an opinion on how long it can take to get to the bottom of things. To repeat, this 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 may sound vainglorious in the part of grants, but I assure you it is not. We are, you know, we are guilty of having not helped our readers make money on this particular name. But we wrote something that turned out to be rather forward-looking and, and not unhelpful in a platonic kind of way. That was 27 years ago. Finally, this week. One might say that the stock has melted down because they welched on the dividend. Uh, that'll be enough of <laughs> that. <laughs> Count it. All right. Well, part of this podcast has been brought to you by Money for the Rest of Us. If you're looking for an investment podcast in addition to this one, may I suggest Money for the Rest of Us. It's a show about money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. Now, that's a good thing. Here's how Money for the Rest of Us listeners describe this personal finance show and recent Apple podcast reviews. One says, wonderful financial insights in a relaxed style. Another, excellent resource for the thoughtful investor. The third, Money for the Rest of Us is one of the freshest, most relevant podcasts I've heard in a long time. Recent Money for the Rest of Us episodes covered, for instance, how business contributes to income inequality. Are financial markets efficient? And should you invest based upon economic cycles? You can subscribe to Money for the Rest of Us on your favorite podcast app, or to learn more, go to moneyfortherestofus.com. Thank you, Money for the Rest of Us. Uh, what's the, oh, the next one? Yes, that uh, we have three specimens of uh, the elapsed time between perception and cashing a check. The second idea, the second observation, is uh, a piece we produced in September. 
September of 2006. This was uh, like five years after house prices began their most unnatural levitation. And I must say, uh, with some authorial pride, the grass was all over that. Again, we were early. House prices did not stop going up merely because we observed that they were absurdly, excessively overvalued with respect to anything you could put a, under a, on a, on a, in a denominator. But still, we, uh, we had that. And thanks to Alan Fournier, who was the uh, managing member, I guess he calls himself, certainly the progenitor of pennant capital management in 2006, we produced uh, a story under the headline, Inside the Ace Securities HEL Trust Series 2005-HE5. Okay, so let me just say it was not a sensational headline. But what it did convey, what it was meant to convey, what it was meant to convey was the convolution of these science projects, these HELOCs, home equity loan debt structures. So the way it worked was there were many, many tranches of these things, and, uh, and they were calibrated such that uh, in this particular case, there were the security held 20 tranches or kind of stories, the bulk of the dollar value being the AAA loans, but tens of millions of dollars in loans in the lower realms of investment grade and an equity pool in the sum of 11 and a half million. So the uh, tranches were the cannon fodder of a hypothetical, mind you, hypothetical real estate bear market. So realized losses of the mortgage held in the portfolio would be absorbed first by the not excessive monthly excess cash flow account. And second, by anyway, no, no sense going into all the details, but uh, here was this piece of recondite financial invention. And our old colleague here, Dan Gertner, truly superb analyst spent days, I guess, weeks on this thing. He figured out that there was a striking lack of diversification, that, uh, that it was vulnerable was this structure on many different counts, and especially vulnerable with respect to a possible real estate bear market. So this, as I say, was September 6th, 2006. Evan, did the housing crisis begin on September 7th? No. Uh, September 8th? I think you're going to need to choose another month. Yeah, another year, perhaps. Yeah. This article described the only thing that mattered in 2008 in 2009, but the stock market didn't peak until October of 2007, a year and a month after this article was published. If I recall, I think the housing market itself had had begun, yes. to, or at least the upward momentum had, had basically ended. It by had, that. it had. Well, listen, this is a guy, I, ladies and gentlemen, thanks you for listening to this thing. I, I hope you're not interpreting this as uh, as some sort of, of self-aggrandizing uh, uh, pitch. It well, a little bit, but but mostly it is an observation uh, that you can be right and not helpful. We try to be right and helpful. Immediately helpful is good. Uh, Long-range helpful, as in the case of GE, is uh, somewhat less good. Now a word from uh, LinkedIn Learning, which is for problem solvers, for go-getters, for people who want to make moves in their career. People like uh, oh, people like you. You want to sharpen your accounting skills or improve your profitability or learn about risk management. Everything you need to achieve more in life is on LinkedIn Learning. So time is money and whether you work for an accounting firm or just deal in spreadsheets as part of your workflow, LinkedIn Learning can improve your efficiency. You know, uh, Phil Grant here has just taken a, uh, a LinkedIn course, LinkedIn Learning course. It's M&A Foundations uh, by Tim Galpin and talks about setting the strategy and effective integration and identifying why some of these transactions don't work out. But Phil attests uh, in a perfectly disinterested and objective way that it was uh, quite good. So uh, please take his word, take our word. Uh, no hidden charges 
or upsells, access all the courses you want, all for one monthly price. Available worldwide, learn from anywhere from your computer, tablet, or mobile device. And there's a special deal. You get a, a free 30-day trial with LinkedIn Learning by visiting linkedin.com hyphen grant. That is linkedin.com grant, all lowercase. Thank you, linkedin.com. So which brings us to uh, observation number three. And, and uh, Evan, you tell about this because this is your particular analytical triumph. We got this idea, to be sure, from Jim Chanos. But uh, as we said at the time, we make our own mistakes around here and we're going to do the own, our own analysis, which you very, very capably did. Tell us about uh, Valiant Pharmaceuticals. Yeah. So we wrote about Valiant on March 7, 2014. What the company did wasn't really hard to, uh, to figure out. They used debt to pay uh, high multiples to buy other pharmaceutical companies. Once they bought these companies, they jacked up prices and volumes fell off. So or organic volumes would decline. Now, the problem with buying a, a drug company is you have a finite patent life. And after a couple of years, that patent disappears and competition appears. So you're, you're buying these kind of finite things, but the debt remains. So the company was valued at a high multiple. They gave kind of a bespoke earnings metrics that took all the cost of these uh, acquisitions out. Right. So, so the street just kind of looked through all this. It wasn't looking at the looming problem that cash flows decline, debt remains, and they'll at some point have to service and refinance that debt, which we thought was a problem. Yeah. We, when we wrote about it on March 7th, uh, it was... What, what, what year again? Refresh uh, 2014. Okay. It was trading around 145, 146 by August 5th, 2015. So, uh, you know, a couple months and uh, a year later, it shot up to $262.52. So almost doubled. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm glad I didn't fire you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, after then, it collapsed to a low of uh, $8.51. Yeah, yeah. Well, these things uh, do happen, and they do happen in their own time. I think uh, perhaps I've said once, but uh, why not repeat it that uh, uh, the inevitable may be certain, but it is not always punctual. But but that one uh, it led to a lot of copycat, including Endo Pharmaceuticals, yes, which did. was actually run by a former VP of, uh, of Valiant. It was called Valiant Junior. A, a number of these companies kind of you know adopted the Valiant model, which led to the same kind of disastrous result. Yeah, well, and uh, and you were on those as well. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Grant's Interest Rate Observer podcast. Talk to you next time. This is Jim Grant. So long. Mm -hmm.